right, uh, I am back, finally, after a very long absence. I know that uh, I've had multiple people message me and say, where's the podcast? I'm, I'm dying without it. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. However, I realize the last one was done in the first part of December, and now here we are near the end of January. There's a couple of reasons for it. Um, one is the obvious, the holidays. Uh, you know, usually when there's holiday stuff going on, um, although this year was obviously not much was going on thanks to the pandemic. Um, you know, I, I don't tend to do a lot of work like this over the holidays. I consider the podcast work because you actually have to think about what you're going to say and then record it and then deal with any tech issues that you might have. So that's the other big reason is that uh, I had some tech issues. Um, yeah, it's uh, very annoying. Um, I'm pretty good at figuring out tech stuff, but in this case, it was uh, an issue where the microphone and the computer was not matching up. And it basically now it is working. Uh, I'm not sure if it's as good as it was. I feel like the sensitivity on my microphone right now is is good enough to hear kind of like the oscillation of atoms in the universe. I mean, it's that good. So you might hear a little more ambient noise on this episode of the podcast, um, which is a little annoying, but hopefully I know a lot of people uh, listen to the podcast while they're uh, doing housework or jogging or, uh, you know, doing other things. And uh, perhaps it won't be as much of an annoyance to you as it is to me, the person recording it. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? We uh, are going to talk about life, death, and the scientific mind. That's the title of this podcast. And um, in a way, it's kind of the uh, uh, culmination of the first season. I feel like this will probably be the last episode of the first season. And really, to me, it's, it's, uh, I consider these podcasts almost like uh, songs on an album. And so, you know, if you create an album, you want to have as many good songs as possible. So I don't like a lot of filler material. Uh, that's why I don't stream every day and then just talk off the top of my head. Although I have had people request that. Um, I don't know if perhaps they need a, a psychological exam, uh, why you would want to listen to me. But, um, Basically, you know, you want to, I want to keep the first season for the most part as an introduction to the idea of death investigation, autopsies, and how we think um, as medical examiners. And I did that because I feel like the, um, you know, a lot of people, they like autopsy, they get into it, they like true crime, but they don't really know what's involved. And so I'm trying to give you more detail than you would get from a TV show, a movie, um, even a book. And that's why I decided to do this podcast. So the last one here we're going to do today is not a specific uh, topic. Like last time we talked about carbon monoxide, which, you know, I thought it was kind of boring, but lots of people seem to really like it. So uh, my promise to you is that starting in season two, which will be probably the next episode, um, we're going to talk about specific things every week, uh, for the most part. And then I'm going to try to put some more current event type stuff in there because, uh, you know, there's a lot of medical misinformation in the world right now. And I feel like I can help 
in uh, sorting some of that out. And that's really why this episode is the last one. Life, Death, and the Scientific Mind is basically a way for me to talk about how I think about cases, um, how pathologists or forensic pathologists think about solving cases, and in general, how you would use uh, or a person uses science to solve a problem. Because um, as you know, right now, we have a lot of misinformation in the world. And um, I think it's sad that there's a lot of people deliberately trying to uh, confuse or sway the opinion of other people with false information. Um, so, you know, it used to be that you could seek out information, find a, an answer to your question through books or things like that. But now, you know, there's a, a Facebook forum or a YouTube video for everything. Like, um, no matter how insane the hypothesis is, there will be somebody who can create a video or, uh, you know, some kind of meme or something. And, and it seems to work on people. Um, and so I'm trying to help, uh, not through, through the lens, through the lens of the, the medical examiner, me, uh, on how science is, um, kind of like carried out because it's really a mentality. Um, when people hear science and they, they fear science, um, they're thinking of, um, you know, people in labs, with beakers and test tubes and doing all sorts of Frankensteinian type things, but uh, it's it's really a little more boring than that. Now, so this what I'm saying is this episode is more of a philosophical uh, rundown of how things work. Um, as you know, um, you know it's and again, it's, I'm not a philosopher, but I feel like the philosophy of science is something that we should have a little better grasp on. And we don't. Um, and uh, there's a lot of different uh, reasons for that. Uh, some is the educational system. Some is uh, probably the way that you know people are brought up and taught. I mean, my parents are not scientists at all. And uh, you know, I'm the only person in my family that has a science background um, in the in the history of my family. So I guess you could say I'm the first scientist. And so I've always kind of appreciated it. And for me, I don't know if it was a genetic mutation or something, but I, I always kind of thought that way, even even as a young person, a very young child. I always had kind of a scientific mind. So it's not a huge surprise that uh, I ended up in science. I mean, some, some days I, I wake up and wish that I was a, a painter or something. But um, for the most part, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I do things and about how you know science works in general with respect to uh, forensic pathology. And so uh, I wanted to give you some examples of how one builds a scientific mind through experience experiences. Um, I have a story that I'm going to share with you at the end of this podcast, um, which is a story of mine. It's a actually an introduction to a book that I, uh, is not published at this point, but, uh, it's an introduction that I wrote, uh, because I thought a few years ago, I was kind of reflecting on why I became a scientist, why I became a doctor. And I think I figured it out and it's, uh, tied to, uh, you know, one set of events when I was a very, very young child. And, uh, some people, when I get to it and I finally read it to you guys, um, some people will probably think, 
oh, this guy's lying. He's totally just, you know, he's written this uh, as some kind of, you know, poetic intro to a book he's trying to get published. Well, that's true. I mean, I, I would like to be published, but uh, uh, the truth is I have a very good memory. Um, it's difficult to be in this field without a, a decent memory. My memory is better than average. I can remember uh, very clear experiences from when I was, uh, you know, four years old. And uh, the experience that I'm going to talk about is when I was five years old. And it stuck with me. It burned into my brain so much that uh, I'm going to share that with you and um, kind of give you a, just a little insight on why I am here as a medical examiner. Because uh, the truth is, one of the uh, most common questions I'm asked, the first question is how to become a medical examiner, which is why I made the podcast and um, I did that because I get asked so often that, um, you know, I like to refer people to the podcast so I, I don't have to continue to ask the question and people still ask it every day. So it didn't really uh, decrease the amount of questions on, on getting the, <laughs> doing the podcast and, uh, and I was hoping it would, uh, people could start there. But yeah, I still get that question. But another question I get, and this was the most common one when I'm in the morgue with somebody who's never seen an autopsy. They say, why did you become a forensic pathologist? Now that's a different question from how. How is a is a set of rules. It's, it's mechanical. Why is a much more deeper uh, philosophy, you know, philosophical question. And I have to be honest, I don't like that question because I like to give simple, quick answers. And, you know, a cardiologist might say, uh, well, why did you become a cardiologist? Cardiologists might say, well, I like hearts. Okay, great. You know, but what does a person say when you say, well, uh, why did you become a medical examiner? Well, I like dead bodies. No, I don't, I don't think anybody likes dead bodies. Um, and that's their main reason. Otherwise, you'd be a, like a necrophiliac. So um, it's a longer answer, and I sort of have to sigh and just give them a really generic answer on, you know, I like to get diagnosis correct and stuff like that. But if you're ever in an autopsy with me, don't ask me why I became a forensic pathologist. I, I'm going to tell you why in this podcast. But anyway, um, so w what I want to talk about today more specifically is the forensic mindset. So it's a scientific, very scientific field of medicine. Okay. Now in today's world, medicine is very scientific. You know, I mean, you go a hundred years ago and you didn't, they didn't really even know what a virus was a hundred years ago. Uh, even in the Spanish flu time in 1918, uh, the word virus was used, but nobody knew exactly what it was. There were probably some people back then that still felt that this was some kind of, uh, you know, divine retribution for, you know, sin or something. And the truth is that probably there's a lot of people that still think that today, but, um, you know, there, there's an increasingly, uh, scientific world in medicine. And I say forensics is one of the most scientific because, we have to, I mean, you absolutely can't use your gut in this, especially in medical legal cases, so murders and things like that. I mean, I've seen cases before where in my soul, I feel like it might be a murder, but I don't have the, 
you know, the evidence right there. The um, and I'm not going to give specifics because that that's just um, that's for another time. I I, I don't want to talk about cases that I've had where I've been worried because then that puts undue suspicion on maybe somebody that didn't do anything wrong. The point being, uh, you learn about the people involved in these cases. And uh, I am concerned sometimes that there's a murder, but I can't prove it. Okay, so there are some ways, uh, you know, that people can get away with murder. The, the pathologist can, you know, when it's a gunshot wound or when it's a stab wound, I mean, obviously, it's easy to call. And there are other ways that people die um, that are more, maybe more well thought out and uh when they're murdered and they're much more difficult to prove at autopsy without a lot of other information and so that is a gut feeling so let's say i have a gut feeling about a case and i say man i really think the husband in this case or the maybe the wife in this case is really acting shady well acting shady doesn't mean that you committed a murder okay if you're acting shady and the person has a gunshot wound to the head and you can't find the gun then maybe at that point, you can call it. But the gut feeling is not something that we rely on. Um, you know, the forensic exam is very an ordered exam. You know, you review the medical records, you review the um, scene photos, you review reports of people who were at the scene, um, loved ones and things like that. And then you do the autopsy exam. You put all of that together. And you can't just infer. Uh, you have to have the the uh, evidence to to come up with the conclusion. And uh, you, you know that's a little bit different than kind of like gut feeling. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I'm spe speaking specifically in medicine. Um, when I was a third year medical student, I was on a clinical surgery rotation with a very experienced surgeon. He was a pancreatic um, and bowel type surgeon. And this guy, was he really didn't say much, but he was old school, very, um, he had a, he really did have a, a scientific approach. Don't get me wrong. But this is where the gut feeling comes in. We went and we examined a patient who had, um, she was there and had surgery um, on her pancreas and she was recovering, older woman, and uh, we were doing our rounds. You've, you've seen and heard about rounds where you go from, you know, patient to patient. And you talk to them and you take their vitals and check their medicines. And so we walk in and here I am as a 30, third year medical student. And I see this lady and to me, it just looks like some lady who's in mild discomfort. And, you know, she's uh, not exactly talkative. But to me, being inexperienced, I didn't think much about it. The attending surgeon comes in and he sees this woman, and immediately his face becomes very grave, and he kind of examines her quickly, comes out of the room, says to our group, you know, the resident, the chief resident, and everything, he says, there is something deeply wrong with that woman, and um, he meant medically, and um, he based that just on looking at her. I mean, he just looked at her, and he just had seen so many patients before, that he knew that there was something wrong. And long story short, she was having an um, intra-abdominal bleed. 
and she was still conscious, but she had kind of lost her, her um, you know, uh, she wasn't making sense a little bit. And uh, I just attributed that to, okay, she's a much older person. Maybe she's demented. You have to understand a third year medical student doesn't have a ton of experience. So, uh, you know, you, you can overlook things like that. But he used his, his gut feeling. And if that had been overlooked, that woman could have coded and died. He used his gut feeling, got her a CT scan, got her into the OR, repaired the bleed. She recovered. Um, but gut feeling in forensic pathology is, that's not something we rely on, especially since, you know, our patients aren't alive. So um, I can have a gut feeling that something is suspicious, but unless the police or some investigators give me concrete evidence of why uh, it might, you know, be a true concern, uh, then there's not much I can do. Now, that being said, there is a place for gut feeling in forensic pathology. And mainly what I'm saying is, if I do feel suspicious about something, I can pass that on to the police. Um, I can say, hey, listen, I this case is not adding up. You know, let's say it's a ligature mark from a hanging, hanging, or let's say it's the distance from which a gun was fired. And I say, this does not match up with the scene photos. I'm a little concerned about this. Then the police can go back and interview and you know, take measurements and things like that. And maybe they can, um, you know, add a little more to the case. So there is, I mean, there is a role for it, but not in my final determination. I guess that's what I'm saying. I can't feel very suspicious about a case and then get my final report and write homicide on it. And the reason is that because when you uh, go to court on a homicide case, you have to have the evidence, right? Um, you know, you can't just say, you can't just say, well, I think it is. Uh, this is what I personally believe because that will not hold up with any jury. You have to have the evidence that is documented on paper or you have to have a good uh, rationale for it. Um, because ultimately every case I do uh, is a murder until proven otherwise. I think that I said that in one of my earlier podcasts. You, you, I personally have to rule out murder on every case, and then I have to have all the evidence uh, in my own exam <clears throat> to, uh, you know, determine whether or not this is a murder, and not just murder cases. Um, you know, like for instance, uh, you know, let's say heart attack. Um, you know, I can't just look at a guy's heart and see a 50% occlusion in his left anterior descending artery and say, okay, he had a heart attack, let's move on. Because that's not enough of an occlusion to produce a heart attack. Now, we'll get to cardiac disease, you know, soon uh, when we start talking about specific stuff. And I might have a feeling that this guy had an arrhythmia. Maybe he was working out. But if you just look at the evidence of cardiac disease and people who have sudden death, generally a 30 or 50% occlusion of an artery is not enough to produce that. So there must be another explanation. So, um, you know, that's basically kind of the idea behind what I'm talking about today. And we're going to get into some different things. Uh, it was a little bit of a long intro kind of, but um, we're going to get into some things, um, different kinds of stories and cases and things. And it's a little bit of a medley type uh, podcast today. Um, I think some of the best endings to albums, remember I said I feel like my seasons are albums and my podcasts are songs. 
Uh, by the way, I used to be in music a long time ago, and so I kind of think in those terms. Um, and some of the best albums ended with a kind of a hodgepodge type song, right? So take Abbey Road, for instance. Abbey Road, The Beatles, you know, the last, uh, the second album, the second side of that album, or the end of the album, if you listen to it digitally. Um, it's kind of a number of very short songs together. It's considered one of the best album endings of all time, um, and one of the best albums of all time as well. And then personally, I was a big Led Zeppelin fan. Their first album, um, which is just called Led Zeppelin One, ended with a song called How Many More Times. And that song is like nine minutes long or something. And it's also a number of uh, little pieces of songs kind of put together, like blues songs. And so um, I guess fittingly, I'm trying to end my season, my album, <laughs> with uh, with a similar sort of approach. If you haven't heard either of those albums, it's definitely worth, uh, you know, giving a listen. So, um, but, you know, like, let's, let's do some examples. Let's think about uh, the scientific mind in general, right? Okay, so today, we, we all think we can figure things out, whether or not we're scientists or not. And even those who hate science, okay, and say they hate science, they don't believe in science, ultimately they do have a scientific mind that they selectively employ. So, and that's what you've got. You've got a range of people. You've got people who apply science to essentially everything they do. And they're scientific in, in every single element of their decision-making. And one of the guys I think of um, who does that, who seems to sort of be obsessed with that is a Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, the astrophysicist. Um, I think he's a little on the extreme end in terms of looking at everything purely mathematically and scientifically. And then on the other end, you've got people who, you know, they think math and science is evil. It's the antithesis of their worldview and therefore none of it's true. Um, and no matter what kind of scientific thing is discovered, they will go out of their way to try to refute it. And, you know, it sort of reminds me of that movie Contact, right? Where the, um, if you haven't seen Contact, it was, uh, you know, written by Carl Sagan, um, astronomer, astrophysicist, and um, came out like 96, 1996. It's got Jodie Foster in it. Um, I guess I shouldn't tell you what happens, but let's just say that there's an anti-science group in that, in that book, in that movie, and they do something very bad to... Um, inhibit progress. I, I, I almost spoiled it for you. That would have been really bad because that's a really good movie and book. So I also recommend that. See, you come here for forensics and you end up with pop culture references. So you can't beat that, right? But the idea is that there are people who see science as the enemy and then in the middle, and they selectively employ it without even knowing that they're using a scientific mind. And then most of us are in the middle. Okay, we call that a bell curve, where it's shaped like a bell, where there's people who are extreme on the um, the bottom of the curve, extreme on the end of the top of the curve, and then in the middle, it distributes into the shape of a bell, where most of us kind of go on our gut for some things, and we go on our you know we go in a scientific approach for other things. Some are more extreme than others, some are less extreme than others. So it's kind of a bell curve. But let's talk about those who hate science and they, they say, I will never use science. It's evil. It's pure evil. Well, it's hardwired into our brains. So there's really no way to get away from it. 
And I want you to think about primitive humans, right? In their quest for food and shelter. So I'm not talking about a thousand years ago. I'm talking more like a hundred thousand years ago or even a million years ago. And so kind of picture these hungry, uh, human-like, primate-like individuals. They're collecting berries and they're collecting different plants to eat. And then they come to the same place every day. You know, they come to the same groves. They start to run out. They're they're overpicking it. They're saying there's no more berries left. So now, uh, and there's no more of this root vegetable that we we tend to eat. So we're going to go and we're going to venture into a different area. They go into an area they've never harvested before, an area of the forest they've never been before. And they pick mushrooms. They pick some mushrooms. They add it for their evening feast. And then later on, food is prepared and then they eat everything. You know, some of them eat everything. Some of them don't. Right. Um, And then days later, some of them begin to fall ill. Um, their skin becomes yellow, and then ultimately they die. So what happened? What happened in this situation? Well, you know, not everyone died, um, and the survivors here are left to try to figure out how the others died. So in a sense, they're kind of being forensic pathologists without uh, training, right? Some of them blame it on the phase of the moon. Uh, on the night of the meal. Others suppose it was some kind of unseen force, um, or for lack of a better term, a curse maybe. And others in the group said, well, wait, what did we do that was different from about our daily life? What did we do that was different, and then now we've had this terrible outcome? Um, one of these people might have developed this hypothesis from his observations. Now, again, he's being scientific, Scientific is saying, what evidence do we have? Okay, we went to a new place, we picked mushrooms, and perhaps these mushrooms, the only new thing we ate, is what caused death. Now, that would be a hypothesis, right? So, at this point, they can just avoid the mushrooms forever and and believe that that's the reason why, or they can believe that it's a curse or that it's the phase of the moon. But to truly become scientific in this case, you have to test it. Now, of course, I'm not advocating the harm to any people or animals, but you have to imagine that 50,000, 100,000 years ago, somebody might have figured out this mushroom hypothesis. They pick the mushroom, and they go back, they pick more of these mushrooms, and they feed it to, let's say, an animal that they capture, or an animal that they've already got that they're keeping kind of as livestock. And they see, does this affect the animal? And if that is that is going to help them with their hypothesis, okay? So if the animal dies, they know it was the mushroom. So now the scientific experiment is complete. Um, that the ingestion of the mushrooms caused death, and now we will avoid those mushrooms forever. So there's no tr- no training here, no white coats, no beakers, no goggles, but this is the scientific method. And what happened here? This is something that still happens today, by the way. There are mushrooms that contain deadly toxins. Okay, so don't go out into the woods and pick mushrooms and eat them unless you know a lot about mushrooms. Now, I personally do not like mushrooms, so this will never, ever affect me unless somebody decides to poison me. 
So if you ever read that I died of mushroom poisoning, then it's a homicide because I will never voluntarily eat mushrooms. I know that you probably are judging me right now because most people like mushrooms. But in this case, it's a mushroom called the death cap, the death cap mushroom, also known as Amanita phalloides, okay? And these, a half of a mushroom can kill a human. And what happens is this mushroom, you ingest it, and it contains a toxin, which causes liver and kidney failure. Now, you can imagine that scenario 100,000 years ago. They eat not half a mushroom. They might each eat seven, eight mushrooms, right? And then they have a horrible death, liver failure, horrible death. They have um, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, um, you know, two to three days later. And, of course, you have signs of liver failure. So that when I said the skin was yellow, that was jaundice, okay? So when your liver fails, you have an increase in bilirubin and bilirubin causes the skin to turn yellow. Um, I see these deaths. I see jaundice-related deaths at least you know once every couple of weeks. Had one yesterday, actually. But it wasn't due to mushroom poisoning. It's usually due to um, alcoholic liver failure or hepatitis-related liver failure. But occasionally, amanitofloides will kill people even today. People who are inexperienced will go out and collect mushrooms, these death caps, put it in their pasta sauce, eat it, and then they die. Um, usually death occurs, you know, 6 to 16 days after eating them. So there's a little fun fact for you. Um, the point of using the mushroom as an example here is that is very plausible, something that could have been, uh, you know, done years, you know, hundreds of thousands or even a million years ago. And somebody had to figure out how and why they died. Maybe not how they died, but what was responsible. And so that is, in a sense, this is a, a natural selection um, advantage of having a memory, right? Is you've solved the problem. You know that people in your tribe died from eating mushrooms. So then you tell people who survived, never eat the mushrooms and then describe what they look like, show them what they look like, never eat them because you will die. And then those people who lived can then reproduce. And then what do they do? They tell their children, never eat those mushrooms. So that is an example of a scientific mind, example of natural selection, for lack of a better term. And um, and also on a, on a note on the amanita, just so you know, I know you're probably thinking, oh, well, they would have cooked them. You're an idiot. No, well, the, the toxin in the amanita... A death cap mushroom is actually heat stable. That's what makes it so dangerous. So you can boil it or cook it and it doesn't matter. The toxin still works. It gets in your body. It causes uh, organ failure and you die. So, um, you know, th these aren't the kind of mushrooms, by the way, that you're going to get when you go to Olive Garden or something. Um, these are people who are out harvesting mushrooms on their own, making them for themselves. So uh, just be aware of that. <laughs> So, but in, even in a more, uh, even in a more primitive sense than that, think about the scenario of a person who accidentally touches a hot stove and they burn themselves. That is also a scientific process, right? Because you get instant feedback, negative feedback. Touch the stove, ouch, and now my mind says, don't touch that again because it hurt. So it's ingrained into our DNA. The, the, the point I'm making is that 
the scientific mind, scientific thought is there. The, the ability to do scientific thinking is there. And so why do we deny it? Well, today we have a lot of um, kind of anti-science propaganda. And, you know, I'm not saying that every single scientific thing is perfect and cannot be refuted. No, in fact, that's what's great about science is that when you get new information, you can change your, your, you know, your hypothesis. You get new results. And science is ever-changing. And so some people interpret the ever-changing nature of science as being uh, something not reliable or imprecise. And that's only partially true. Um, when you think about like gravity, for instance, gravity is here. It's been here since the beginning of, of time, and it will be here after we're gone, gravity. And the laws of gravity are not going to change in any tangible sense for here uh, for us here on earth now you want to talk about near black holes and you know things like that it's different but for all practical purposes when something is finally uncovered scientifically and extensively tested it is fact um, and it doesn't change so um, cell biology for instance um, we are in a time where we are dealing with a pandemic so we have a element of microbiology virology uh, the the new coronavirus, although it's not so new anymore, is it? It's um, it's uh, two almost two, a year and a half old now, and it's uh, it's mutating into new viruses. So we'll have some new ones, and the old one is going to be you know kind of on the back burner. That's another story. But the point I'm making is that um, you know the these the what do we have this cell biology uh, element as well? You know, we have the virology, we have the cell biology, and if you if you've ever been online, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you'll you'll know that people who have no background in virology or cell biology, epidemiology, um, public health are now experts on it. So um, you know, it's don't get me wrong science is accessible but you also have to know how to interpret this stuff and so a lot of the misinformation is coming from people who don't know how to properly interpret scientific data and um, that's not surprising because it's not taught very well at least in American schools um, I'm not bashing education I love teachers I have teachers in my family and um, I respect teachers greatly, even though in high school I was a, a terrible student who did not respect teachers. I do now. Um, and my science teachers were actually pretty good. But when I think about my science education, um, it didn't really give me the ability for critical assessment, critical thinking on scientific data in high school. Obviously, I went to college and med school and I took a million science classes. So now I'm pretty good at it. But... Uh, I think about people maybe who only took one science class. They're just not interested in it. it they don't care. Uh, and that's totally fine. Not everybody is going to be a scientist. But to be able to interpret that data um, is, is no easy thing. And so I believe it's been mutated by forces who can try to trick people, unfortunately, to believe something they want the public to believe, but that isn't true. So I've given you, uh, in, to this point, I've kind of displayed how a 
scientific mind works. Even for those who don't want it, even those who don't believe in it, it works. And they use it. But what about a real forensic case? Because I know that's why you guys listen. You're like, why is this guy not talking about forensics? I'm not going to subscribe to this anymore. No, you know, we're just getting started. We're just getting started in forensics. I just want you guys to, for us to all be on the same level. So let's talk about a case. Three-month-old baby is brought in for autopsy. And the history is that the mom works an overnight shift. And uh, while she was gone, um, and, and you know she was gone, the dad is out of the picture, the, the, the actual biological father. But a boyfriend is living at home in the apartment with the mother of the child and the child. So this is a three-month-old baby. He doesn't have a job. Plays video games online. Um, that's kind of his main thing that he does. And his story is that he wants to. He went to go check on the baby. The baby wasn't breathing. Um, 911 was called. The baby was transported to the hospital, but ultimately does not survive. Uh, first of all, let me just say that um, I can't even tell you how many times I've had this history. And it doesn't always mean somebody did something bad, but I have this history a lot. Um, a little baby in the care of somebody who uh, is not biologically related to the baby, the baby dies. Um, it's always a little bit suspicious when that happens. But in this case, you know, cops, they don't see anything. Police doesn't see anything overtly suspicious at the scene. But the guy there, he's acting nervous. He's shifty. His story is a little bit off. Uh, but it's not totally crazy. It's, it's, you know, one of these things where he's clearly lost track of time. And the autopsy itself, when I do the autopsy, turns out stone cold negative. Can't find any reason why this child is dead. There's no trauma. There's no natural diseases to explain why the child is dead. Um, we do toxicology. There's no substance in the blood. Child hasn't been poisoned. There are no signs of infection. Microbiology cultures are negative. So what do we call these? How did we diagnose these? Now, in the old days, this case would have been called SIDS, which stood for Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. But... Let me tell you, this is not a term we use anymore. We do not use the term SIDS. It's called Sudden Unexplained Death of an Infant. We call it a SUDI, actually. And this is usually a case that is called undetermined. Sometimes people will call them natural because they can't find... Clearly, the child is too young to commit suicide. There's no accidental death. Um, it's not proven to be a homicide, and so some people will say it's a natural. Um, that's a little bit of a controversy in my field. Um, my view is if it's unexplained, if it's an unexplained death, then it must be undetermined. Um, so this underscores how you can't use gut, though. You can't use your gut instinct to assign cause and manner. In this case, the guy is very suspicious, right? He's acting shifty. He's not even related to the child. Um, not a reputable guy. Usually they have some kind of criminal rap sheet or something. But yet, I can't just say it's a homicide because I've seen multiple cases before where it was murder in this exact scenario. No, you have to have the evidence. And in this case, it could, have, it could well have been um, a, a death which was, let's say, let's imagine this for, for a second. The, the whole situation is exactly as he says. He puts the baby to sleep, 
but not knowing kind of what he's doing, he puts the baby face down. The baby then suffocates because it can't roll over. And really what it's died of is a positional asphyxia, which is an accident. So that, in other words, the airway is blocked by the soft bedding. He finds the child and rolls the child over, uh, you know, because he's going to check uh, on the baby. And the, he feels terrible about it, obviously. He feels uh, it's his fault, but he c- conveniently leaves that detail out to the uh, police. And and yet, not a homicide. I mean, it, sure, he didn't know what he was doing. Child dies. Um, it's his fault. But it's not a homicide because he didn't do it intentionally. If I call it a homicide, he gets arrested. He goes to jail. There's a trial. He gets tried for murder. Well, you know, being stupid doesn't necessarily mean you've murdered somebody, okay? He didn't know how to take care of a baby. By the way, I'm not saying he's stupid because this is a fictional uh, representation of a case. Some people just don't know how to take care of a baby. They've never done it before. He's a young guy and certainly not making excuses, but you'd be surprised. This situation happens a lot. And even though he seems like a suspicious guy, I can't call it a homicide. Um, And I've even had cases like this before where investigators have kind of pressured me. Oh, we really feel that this is, you know, we really are concerned about this guy. Well, then show me the evidence. Show me the um, the phone records and the computer records where he said, typed in how to kill a baby or something, um, how to make it look like SIDS or something like that. Because if I have no physical evidence, there's nothing I can do. I can't really do much in this case. Now, in the case I just described, um, usually I can sort out whether or not it's a positional asphyxia. For instance, if you've got a baby face down, maybe in a pillow or a stuffed animal or bedding, um, they will have a little bit of drool. Um, They can even develop a little bit of pulmonary edema as they're dying. Um, And then that foam will come out onto the the cloth. So usually I have investigators look at the bedding, the cloth, anything there. And if there's there's a stain on it, then it's... uh, especially if it's fresh, that's as suspicious that the, um, the mouth and nose was in contact with it. Usually that's pretty good evidence for positional asphyxia. Um, but that's another story. I, I just wanted to give an example of how, in this case, you can't just go with gut. Now, 50, 70, 80 years ago, did people arrest people based on gut? Well, yeah, they might have. I think there's a lot of people that probably did get arrested in this uh, and tried and even convicted without proper evidence. And we hope that that doesn't happen. But uh, unfortunately, no system is perfect. So um, the idea is that, again, understand that I'm not just a medical doctor, I go to court. And it is on me to provide the testimony and the evidence to secure the conviction. Okay? So in this exact situation, um, I would not have been able to in court if I had said it was a homicide. Um, and then of course that, that's not a good thing because then you've put a person in jail, um, and maybe there was no reason for it. And then you can't defend your findings because there are no findings. So, um, let's move on to another case. It's not as dramatic as a pediatric death, but let's say we have a known alcoholic, 40 years old. He's found dead in his apartment. Investigation shows no signs of trauma or foul play. He's face down, and there are many vodka bottles and beer cans throughout the apartment. The body is brought in for autopsy, 
and what I find is a fatty liver, uh, maybe a little bit of jaundice, but otherwise the autopsy is negative. And to be honest with you, I have this autopsy like once a week. It's a person who is uh, dies from drinking or from stopping drinking, if, if you can believe that. Um, so there's no definitive cause of death other than a fatty liver. So how do you call a case like this? How do you sign this case? Well, sometimes additional history can help. So for instance, if it is a, a reported from a good source, maybe it's a wife or a brother or someone that lives with him, that he was trying to quit alcohol, cold turkey, he may well have had a withdrawal seizure. This is known as delirium tremens, okay? This is very uh, important. This is a, a very important outcome of alcohol withdrawal for severe alcoholics, okay? Because sometimes people try to quit cold turkey, but their body is dependent on that level of alcohol. They quit cold turkey and they develop a seizure and they die frequently from that, If they're, especially if there's not someone there to help them. So um, I have this case multiple times a year where I'm supposed to sort out, is this death due to alcoholic intoxication or is this death the absence of alcoholic intoxication? Well, in this case, toxicology will be important. So if the toxicology shows a high level of ethanol, it's easy. So it's an acute alcoholic intoxication, and it's an accident. And we see those. You know, usually we're talking about blood alcohol concentrations above, you know, 0 0.25, 0 0.3, 0 0.35. Severe alcoholics can even get up past 0.4 and still survive. But what if the ethanol level is negative? Well, it happens kind of common, actually, commonly. So there's explanations. One is that the man was drunk, but not drunk enough to kill him, and the ethanol level metabolizes while he's unconscious, but before he dies, before he develops a heart arrhythmia. Because ethanol is continued to be metabolized by your body. If your liver is, you know, if your organs are functioning, you can be unconscious you can even, you know, maybe have a seizure or have something like that, um, even a fall, and then you get the toxin. It's negative if the person lived several hours after the incident, because even though they're not up walking around, their liver is still taking care of that alcohol and getting rid of it. Okay, this is called zero order kinetics for the biochemists who listen to this, um, and the toxicologists who listen to this which they already know that, so they don't need to know, but you do if you don't know those things. It's called zero-order kinetics, which means that it'll continue to metabolize until it's um, gone. The second option is that he never had any alcohol in his system, but he quit cold turkey and then had the fatal withdrawal. So then you might say, well, Dr. Wolf, his apartment was full of vodka bottles and full of beer cans. Well, that's often the case. Um, you know, severe alcoholics uh, aren't often tidy, in their house. Those vodka bottles might be two months old. So we can't purely go on scene here. We can't purely go on what is seen, you know, in, in the death uh, scene, okay? And this is what I'm getting at with the scientific evidence. You have to go through and you have to find the variable, and then you have to explain the variable with testing. And then, so what do we do with a case like this? We can't just say he had a seizure because the, the brain is often negative for seizure when you uh, do an autopsy, right? So a lot of people don't know that, but unless there is a specific lesion causing the seizure, 
When I look at a brain of a seizure person, I can't say definitively, aha, this person had a seizure. Usually there are other things. Um, if it's witnessed, obviously, that's extremely helpful. But you see pulmonary edema, uh, not pulmonary, uh, cerebral edema, which is not specific. You can see that in many different things. You'll often see pulmonary edema, so lung edema, and uh, again, not specific. Um, can be helpful to see bites on the tongue because sometimes people uh, will uh, bite their tongue. And of course, it's kind of urban legend that everyone bites their, bites their tongue. In fact, only about 25% of people who have a seizure will actually have a tongue bite. So you can't look at that. So there's no good uh, definitive way. Um, but scientifically, again, all you have here in the case we described is the fatty liver. And, and if you're negative uh, for alcohol, you sign it out as complications of chronic alcoholism because we don't know why or which complication killed him. Uh, some people say that altered liver metabolism can result in cardiac arrhythmias, um, which so initial cause is due to the alcoholism. Also, alcohol, eth ethanol specifically, can be a direct toxin to the heart muscle, okay? An irritant is the term they use. And you irritate the heart muscle enough and you can develop an arrhythmia. Okay, so we can't say exactly to the point what killed him in this case, but it's probably one of those two things and can even be due to the seizure that we talked about. So this is complications of chronic alcoholism. And interestingly, that is a natural manner of death. It is not an accident. It's only an accident when they are actively drinking and they overdose on the alcohol, okay? So again, we're assuming a lot of things to be true when perhaps they aren't, but the reason in this case, in many cases, of you know, we talk about regular people and we talk about scientists, there's something called confirmation bias. Now, some of you have heard this term and you know what it means, but let me explain to you what confirmation bias is. It literally means a tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. So let's go back to this case uh, of the alcoholic, right? He's, he looks alcoholic. He's, um, you know, he's jaundiced. And we know he has the history of alcoholism. His apartment's a mess. He's got vodka bottles everywhere. So in this case, a confirmation bias would be the pathologist saying, aha, clearly this is an alcohol overdose. All of the evidence is present for it. We're going to sign it out as acute alcoholic intoxication accident. We don't even need to do an autopsy. So that would be an example of confirmation bias because you're already confirming what you believe to be true. But a good scientist and a good scientific mind tries to stay away from confirmation bias. But let me give you um, kind of a real-world example of how confirmation bias works, okay? Let's suppose you're an athlete, doesn't matter what sport, but on the day you have your best game, let's just say it's basketball, you have your best game ever, uh, you had worn a bracelet you had never worn before, like some kind of little rubber bracelet that people wear these days. Um, you decide at this point, well, I had 20 points, I put on the new bracelet, this must be my, my lucky bracelet, and then you wear it for every game. You don't really think about the bracelet when you have bad games, though. You think about it only when you have a great game, and you say, thank goodness, 
for my lucky bracelet. I could not have scored all those points without my bracelet. Well, that's pretty much confirmation bias. You only uh, are thinking about the bracelet working when you do well. And when you don't do well, well, it wasn't the bracelet, it was something else. So confirmation bias is present in all walks of life, and most people don't even realize they're doing it. And now in science, of course, confirmation bias is a very bad thing. If you've predetermined what you want to see in an experiment, you'll look at any result um, that that is you know even close to it as a true result. And... I used to be a lab scientist. Now, the reason why I'm so interested in this pandemic and this virus stuff is I was actually a virology research assistant, believe it or not, before I went to med school. So I've worked with uh, dangerous viruses before. I've done lots of molecular biology on these viruses. and But the truth is, I was not a tremendous lab scientist. I <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I went to med school after I my lab science career, I think just wasn't the best thing ever. But I suffered from confirmation bias um, in some cases. I I knew that I was developing a test for um, a certain hepatitis C type test. And this is, by the way, this is like over two decades ago. And now, of course, all of that, fortunately, all that research has turned out where hepatitis C has a great treatment now. But at the time, it really had no treatment. And so, you know, I I would set up my experiments and then I would look at the results and I knew what I wanted to see. I was looking at interleukin-6 levels, by the way, and some other cytokines. And I knew what I wanted to see in these uh, you know, experiments. And then when you do see signs of it, you say, oh my gosh, my experiment worked. Okay, okay, well, I'm a great scientist now, and this proves uh, that hepatitis C does this and give me the Nobel Prize. But this is why things are peer-reviewed. Peer-reviewed means other people, other scientists that aren't related to your uh, specific experiment, look at your results, and then they decide uh, whether or not they're valid, okay? And that's why we have problems today, um, and specifically with the online community, we have somebody say something that's completely untrue, and it's not peer-reviewed. In fact, (laughs) it's peer-amplified. So if you have people of a similar mindset, and they see a result that they want then they amplify that. So in other words, bad information tends to amplify quicker than good information. Um, The classic example uh, in the last 10 months has been mask effectiveness. Uh, Anytime you see uh, somebody prominent um, say that masks don't work, like for instance, this guy, uh, this neuroradiologist that was... um, the uh, coronavirus uh, task force leader there uh, this past fall. Um, He was sort of an anti-mask guy. And what happens is if you can get a couple of prominent people saying that and you already want to believe that, then you can amplify that. But it's actually a lot more complex than that. Um, For instance, if you don't wear your mask properly, it's not going to work. And frankly, most people don't wear their mask properly. Oh, by the way, I'm not mask shaming. Um... I'm just saying people don't know because they have not had the training in how to put a mask on and also the type of mask. I mean, the the best possible scenario, and I'm a little bit, sorry, I'm a little bit on a tangent here, but the best possible scenario is an N95 mask or a P100 mask on your face at all times, pretty much when you leave your house and you go um, with other people. 
But if you wear kind of a loose-fitting cloth mask or you're pulling it down under your chin um, and things like that, you can still get sick. And then you'll say, ah, but I, you know, I wore a mask. How could it have been? How could that have happened? It clearly doesn't work. And then they post it online. And then that particular thing gets amplified millions of times, which then causes other people to say, aha, masks don't work. And by the way, I'm not trying to lecture you on this. I'm giving you a real world example of how this amplification works. Um, um, In this case, a mask is not a talisman. You know, a talisman means like a magic charm. You have to actually wear it properly for it to work. And um, unfortunately, it's just not something that most people knew how to do before the pandemic. And then if you have something as thin as a t-shirt on your face, you can wear that thing 24 hours a day, you can still get sick. So a lot of times it was um, not the person's fault they tr- uh, that they got sick. They tried to do what was right. They just weren't given the proper tools. So that's an example of confirmation bias is I want to believe masks don't work and I found one example of a person who got sick so now I will amplify that because it's what I believe. Um, And that's just one of a a million examples. I mean confirmation bias happens throughout your day, every day, and even in scientists. Well-trained scientists suffer from confirmation bias. So, um, you know, you, you have to just... I guess you want to try to guard against it and you want to second guess yourself a little bit, at least up front. Is this real? I need to double check this. I need to have somebody else double check this. Um, Try to avoid having something agree with thoughts that you already have. In fact, it might be a good idea to do the opposite because then you challenge your mind um, to, you know, and then and in a sense, I mean, this is how I learn as a scientist in forensics, is when I'm inexperienced, you know, I have certain ideas about a case, and I believe that maybe it's this type of gunshot wound or this type of stab wound, because the police told me, hey, the gun was a 38 caliber uh, gun, and then I look at the wounds and I say, aha, this must have been from a 38 caliber, instead of saying, I don't really... I'll take what the police said, but I'm going to put it in a separate compartment outside of my brain. I'm going to do my exam, and then I'll see if it's consistent. So, you know, um, I guess it's it's a human thing, okay? It's a very human thing to engage in confirmation bias. There's, I, I'm not shaming anyone for doing that because I do it unconsciously. We all do. But we want to try to guard against it. And confirmation bias in forensics can be a really tough thing because a lot of times you'll have investigators. You've got the death investigator and you've got the police. uh, And you've even got attorneys who are already involved before you do an autopsy. And if you are saturated with ideas before your autopsy, this can unwittingly cause confirmation bias. So you have to guard against that. So, you know, um, let's maybe talk about in another case um, about the forensic pathologist, you know, who hears about a case where a man was at work in a machine shop. Okay, so we're going to go on to another case. Uh, The forensic pathologist looks at it, uh, looks at the man and sees that he is uh, obese. He's older. Maybe he's, you know, 65, 70 plus. He has a history of smoking. And the forensic pathologist knows 
before he makes his first cut. He knows in his heart it's a cardiac death without evidence. Um, first of all, uh, workplace deaths have to be investigated. If you listen to my uh, podcast on who needs to be autopsied, anybody who dies at work needs to be autopsied because we have to know whether or not this was a natural process or something related to the workplace itself. So in this case, let's say the pathologist sees this obese older guy, smoker, and he says, oh, he, he was found dead by his machine. This is a cardiac death, 100%. He does the autopsy, and when he gets to the heart, he notices that there is a 75% occlusion of the left anterior descending artery. And his, this confirms his pre-autopsy beliefs, okay? This was a sudden cardiac death. 75% occlusion in the left anterior descending artery or the right coronary artery is certainly enough to produce a sudden cardiac death. But this is where you have to guard against the confirmation bias. The closer exam and study of this body would have revealed a small burn lesion on his hand and an exam at the scene revealed an exposed wire on the machine where he was working. So the cause of death in this case would actually be electrocution, which is an accident and possibly related to a problem at the workplace, not a natural death. So in short, to be a great scientist, uh, to be, have a good scientific mind, we must be wary of this tendency for confirmation bias because it can lead you down the wrong path. And if you look at things uh, you already hold to be true, you often won't get to the, the actual truth, which is a, a case that, you know, that's what would have happened here is, okay, look, this, this guy has a bad heart. He's obese. He smokes. He dropped dead. It's sudden cardiac death. Let's move on. Well, that's a very, very big difference for insurance, for workman's comp. Natural death versus electrocution due to some kind of malfeasance and checking the, uh, the machine he was working on. So that can make a, a huge difference and also to the family as well. You know, I mean, not just financially, but just knowing what happened. Um, as forensic pathologists, we like to be the giver of truth. I like uh, one of the best things about my job, truthfully, and uh, I, I enjoy it a, a great deal, is giving closure to families. Every now and then, I will hear from a family uh, for which I did an autopsy for one of their loved ones, and they will say, Dr. Wolf, your autopsy report, your result gave me so much closure, I finally was at peace with the death. And that is the number one reason why I do what I do, because I like to be correct, and I like to pass on that truth, free of bias, free of confirmation bias, to the family to give them some kind of closure, okay? Um, that is the absolute best thing that I do. Um, this reminds me of a short story. This is not this. I am going to tell you another story, but quickly, I was at a party once um, with some, you know, sort of youngish, but I was still a doctor, and uh, there was another guy there, and he was a neurosurgeon or a neurosurgery resident, I think. And so classically, you know, some of these doctors, uh, you know, they, they like to, uh, to be the big man in the room, right? And so he finds out that I am a doctor, and then he comes over and, and he asks me what I do, and I say, of course, I'm a pathologist. And then he instantly has to tell me that he's a neurosurgeon, because that obviously makes him better than me. And he says, 
Ah, pathologist. Well, that's a thankless job, isn't it? And of course, you know, this is very insulting. Um, you know, but I, I kind of take it with a grain of salt uh, because that's just that's just how some people are. And the truth is, I was never in this job for the th- for the thanks. I don't need a pat on the back or a pat on the head to make me feel like I'm doing a good job. I have honed my mind to be as scientific as possible, to get to the truth on side on the surface of and inside the human body, in order to arrive at a conclusion that is satisfactory and that is correct, that will produce closure for those family members and loved ones of the person who died. And so that is the essentially why I do what I do. But now I want to tell you the story, the, a very short story that I wrote, uh, introduction to a book. And I want to tell you um, that I think it's why I became a doctor and why I ended up uh, becoming a pathologist. Writing a long time ago, maybe a decade ago, and it was about forensic pathology. It was about doing autopsies and being a pathologist. And uh, I wanted to open it up with um, some way for the reader to understand why I became a medical doctor, a medical scientist. And so I had to do some soul searching. I thought about it for a while, a few weeks, and I tried to isolate the event or events that caused me to kind of have that mindset. Because uh, like I said, we all have a scientific mindset, whether we like it or not. Some of us just more than others. And then what was my predilection for uh, becoming a medical doctor and specifically a forensic pathologist? And the uh, that's why, you know, when I'm in the morgue and I'm working and somebody asks me why, it's, it's just an exhausting thought to try to explain why. Because there are many reasons, many layers on why somebody does something, right? And by no means is this event, uh, you know, too traumatic. It's just a memory. It's a memory of mine that I believe set me on the path to where I am today. So I'm going to read this to you. Um, it's a short introduction, and perhaps it'll find itself in print one day. It was a dark January morning, and I was on an overnight visit to my grandmother's house in the countryside of southern Indiana. A fresh coat of deep snow had covered the lawns and fields of Millersburg. Only a sparse brown sprig of wheat penetrated the surface of the snow blanket. In Millersburg, there is no town square, no businesses, and no stoplights. There are just a few white siding and brick houses that line the main highway that passes through the rural farmland. The only visible sign of community was the one-room church with its worn paint and wooden cross high above the entrance door. It was mid-morning, and the air was redolent of black coffee and crispy bacon. The sounds of the morning news faded in and out as my grandmother adjusted the rabbit ears antenna of her small black-and-white TV that sat atop her kitchen counter. I chased imaginary enemies through all rooms of the house as I brandished a cardboard wrapping paper tube as a makeshift sword. My attention was drawn to a low-pitched buzzing sound that seemed to come from the outside. I paused and listened for a moment. The sound continued to get louder in a kind of undulating crescendo, and it was coming closer. I dropped my cardboard tube and ran to the windowsill, pulling myself up onto a chair to get a better view. What I saw delighted me. A man 
blazing through the frozen countryside on a snowmobile in the small field just to the south of the house. The machine curved and swooped and roared, creating great waves of snow as the engine revved loudly and the machine sped about. A warmth filled my chest, and I burst out. It's Pappy. It's Pappy. Pappy, my grandfather, was to my knowledge the only person in Millersburg who owned a snowmobile. Having not seen him for about two months, my excited squeals drew my grandmother out from the kitchen. She peeked into the small room where I was perched on a chair, and then ambled toward me with a slight limp that she always had. I waved my arms and jumped and tried to get Pappy's attention, but he never came. It's Pappy. Can I go outside and see him? I exclaimed. She manifested a tempered, almost proud smile, knelt down in front of me, and put her hand on my shoulder. Her ice-blue eyes conveyed a solemn trust. Honey, Pappy passed away. You know that. That's not him. I felt confused and anxious. Time seemed to slow down. I turned my head to look out the sliding glass door. The snowflakes moved in parabolic arcs against the window, melting into small droplets as they touched the warm glass. I had heard those words before, passed away. He had passed away. Perhaps my five-year-old mind had translated that into he's gone, but not gone forever, as if he was on a long trip. The words that my grandmother said floated to the floor as I tried to comprehend their meaning. There was a feeling in my chest as if I had taken in too much breath or perhaps too little. I fidgeted and avoided eye contact with her. The hope I had that he could return was now dashed, albeit in the softest possible way. The fe this feeling was loss. As I looked out the window, the rider and his machine seemed to float like an apparition over the snow, something that could be observed but never touched. The buzzing sound from the engine got more distant, and finally, the man was swallowed up by the white winds that whipped across the fields of Millersburg. The memory still plays out in my mind like the remnants of a dream. The concept of his death began to rapidly condense in my mind as I began to string together the fragmented memories of the previous two months. I remembered hearing discussions about sickness, pain, bleeding, and something called chemotherapy. I remember another family member picking me up from school, and I heard her say those words passed away to my teacher. As I looked back over my shoulder and out into the snow, the weight of the world pressed down on my small body as my mind connected the dots. I finally got it. He's not coming back, ever. This was no longer about sickness, hospitals, or the process of dying. This was death. I did not cry as I tried to make sense of this revelation. At the time, there was only the profound silence of realization and the new, uncomfortable feeling of helplessness that comes with loss. With few words, I went back to playing as children do, and I did not speak of that event again. Now certainly, I could not have known the weight of that event when it happened in 1980. In all, Watching the man in the snow was probably about five minutes, but its impression was lasting. There were too many questions that did not make sense. In my mind, I kept thinking the back pain that he had was somehow related to getting cancer, uh, or that the Lifesaver's candy was the cure for not feeling nauseous because he used to only eat Lifesavers because he couldn't keep anything else down. 
The many unanswered questions surrounding the nature of his disease and his death was undoubtedly a stimulus for discovery and a deep curiosity of science within me. Even as a child, I searched through medical books to try and make sense of how this disease took his life. And that disease was actually uh, what was called at the time multiple myeloma. Today they call it plasma cell myeloma. It's a type of cancer of an immune cell called a plasma cell. Um, this is the type of cell in your body that produces antibodies, actually. And if you produce too many of them, uh, you get uh, the plasma cell myeloma. It fills your bone marrow, and it does a couple of different things. It makes your blood very thick because it's full of protein, because of all the antibodies. And it crowds out all of the other cells in your bone marrow, white blood cells. If you crowd those out, you don't have an immune system anymore. And red blood cells, if you don't cry, if you crowd those out, the um, cells that make red blood cells, then you get severely anemic. And then platelets, so uh, the cell that produces platelets is called a megakaryocyte. And if you crowd those out, you get what's called thrombocytopenia, which means you bleed. So these people tend to bleed uh, to death or they get a horrible infection and die. And um, he did not have a very good death. He, uh, I, I wasn't there, but I remember my mom and dad describing it later. And, uh, you know, it, it was that realization, that moment of f finality for me, I think that uh, made me very interested in why people die. And then the specifics of the disease, uh, plasma cell myeloma and uh, other diseases and why people die made me very interested in pathology, which of course literally translates to the study of disease. And so that's it. Life, death, and the scientific mind. I feel like this is the appropriate end to the first season, or the first album, as I like to think of it. And I hope you learned something. I hope we're all on the same footing now, so that we can go forward. I can now start to talk about more specific things with forensics. I think season two will probably be very popular, and if I continue to do it after that, because we're going to get down to the sort of meat and bones, um, pun intended, I guess, of forensic pathology. So I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, it's a little longer than normal, but I figured with a six-week absence, that's the least I could do. And uh, I hope to get my next episode up quicker than last time. I can't really go six weeks. I need to get them up quicker, right? Um, I've got some specific things I want to say about um, the science around the COVID vaccines and also how some autopsy stuff about the virus and things like that. So I suspect that'll be kind of a quick mini episode that I'm going to put up soon. Hopefully that's the next one. And if you have any questions, you know how to reach me. Um, I also wanted to say if you've made it this far, which I don't know who would listen all the way to the end, but if you've made it this far, um, my Instagram page, which is probably my most popular social media offering is called anatomy and the dead and there's an underscore in between each word that might actually be getting changed to knife after death because that's sort of becoming my brand at this point and so i think it'll be easier for people to find and put together um, we'll see how that goes i know my previous podcasts i had uh, announced it as anatomy and the dead so it might be difficult uh, for people to find if i change the name so we'll see how it goes 
Uh, At any rate, thanks for listening this long, and I hope to talk to you soon.